Yeah. Man, editing a podcast, though, the first episode I edited, it took me 10 hours to edit a one-hour episode. I'm like, this needs to change. <laughs> um, and also, that's the other thing, too. Ums. I delete all the ums. So if you say um, don't worry about it. I'll delete them. Welcome to Conversation on Tap, a podcast that seeks to promote intelligent dialogue in an age of echo chambers and self-segregation. Pull up a stool, pour a glass of tasty beer, and join us each week as we discuss all the topics that you were told not to discuss in Black Company. My name is Jose. My name is Christina. That's right, my wife and the mother of my child. <laughs> this week I'll be interviewing Paul Fahey, a contributor to wherepeteris.com, to discuss Pope Francis. So, what do we have on tap here? One of my personal favorites, which is uh, Fig Mountain Lizard's Mouth. And in fact, we mentioned this on uh, an earlier episode, mm-hmm. that they were out. They were totally out of uh, Lizard's Mouth uh, for... Uh, reasons that are totally understandable because of the COVID mm-hmm. um, kind of halted, uh, I think, some production there. But much to your surprise and mine, we were able to find it yesterday. I know. I walked in and there it was. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so good. Yeah. 9% alcohol by volume. It For me, it's uh, definitely a summer type of beverage. I'm glad we had Figaro Mountain Brewing Company's Lizard's Mouth. It's really good. Delicious. Yes. And now for the segment of our show that we call Fred Talks. In this segment of our show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we are passionate about or interested in for about two minutes, though that isn't a strict time limit because we tend to be chatterboxes. Christina, what do you have for us this week? Today I have uh, the Glee curse. And a lot of people hate... Glee? Well, no, no, that phrase, the Glee curse. Oh, okay. But, I mean, there's been a lot of uh, unfortunate deaths with this cast. I mean, I think with a cast that size, I mean, there's bound to be drama or whatever. But uh, we now have three cast members who have passed away. The first being uh, Corey Monteith, a.k.a. Finn. And sorry, guys, if I'm if I'm whistling when I talk, I have braces. Okay, <laughs> I have not mentioned this before <laughs> in any of the other episodes, and I don't want to be self conscious about it. But I have braces. Yeah. So if you hear me whistle, <laughs> mom braces. <laughs> if I talk a little funny sometimes, it is my ever so stylish braces I've got going on. So they're cool. Back to Corey. Uh, A.K.A. Finn. He died on July 13th, 2013 at the age of 31. Wow. And, you know, he played the quarterback on that show, Popular Kid. And uh, he died of uh, an alcohol heroin overdose. And it's like, you think that this guy, Mm -hmm. I mean, if you look at him, you would never think that this actor is, is mixed up in heroin of all things Mm. so that was just uh widely controversial you know not only that he died and died at such a young age at the age of 31 
but how he died. Yeah. So that that was the first death in 2013. And then the second death was uh, Mark Salling, a.k.a. Puck. And he died January 30th, 2018. And he died a suicide. And another controversial thing. Mm-hmm. He was charged back in December of 2015 on child pornography charges. So uh, he agreed to plead guilty and serve between, I think, four to seven year sentence, uh, which was due, it was due to uh, appear, I think, in March of 2018, but he ended up uh, committing suicide that January. So right before he was supposed to go in. Yes. He just. Yes. And then again, like I, when I first started watching the show, I was like, who is this guy? I mean, I was like totally smitten with him. Good looking guy. Played the jock, you know, the bully, whatever. Eventually he ended up in the glee club. And you would think that this guy who's got success on this show, Mm -hmm. you would never imagine him being uh, into child pornography. Yeah. Whatever that entailed, on whatever level, like, just, it just blows our minds. I think um, he couldn't live with himself Mm -hmm. or his reputation that would be forever tarnished, forever tarnished, and decided to take his life. And then the third death, which happened uh, recently, actually, which was Naya Rivera, a.k.a. Santana Lopez, And she was 33. And this just grieved my heart because she was out at uh, Lake Pirate, which is in Ventura County, which is not too far from where we live. Her and her son were out uh, boating and um, she disappeared. You know, they found her son on the boat asleep with a life jacket on. They found an adult life jacket on the boat. She was nowhere to be found. Um, and then days later, they end up tragically finding her body. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as a mom, I mean, mm. could you imagine? I, I'm only speculating here what happened. I mean, obviously, this was like a tragic accident. One, she didn't have her, her life jacket on. Two, one of the officers, when they asked the son questions, was that, you know, mommy was pushing him back onto the boat, but... He saw her just below the surface. Struggled to come up, yeah. Yeah. And so, oh gosh, you know, it's it's like, as a mom, of course, your last ditch effort is to get your child mm. to safety. Forget about yourself. That child is number one, the utmost important person to, to, to get to safety. And, um, you know, who knows what happened? Maybe she was tired Maybe she had a cramp or something, you know? Sometimes people swallow some water and go down and have a hard time coming back up. And, I mean, we can only imagine the things that happened in those very few moments that probably led to her tragic death. But it just saddens me as a mom and her son having to have this memory of her, you know? Yeah, it was one of those things where I never even watched Glee, really. Mm-hmm. Even I was really saddened by that. Yeah. Well, and they, I think they also mentioned that the boat wasn't anchored. Mm-hmm. So they could have been out swimming and the boat could have drifted mm-hmm. um, and kept drifting. So 
it made it further and further for her to have to swim oh, yeah. with her son back to, you know, the safety of the boat. Yeah, true. So, but anyway, that's my Fred talk. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for my Fred talk this week, I don't know the level of depressingness it is, but <laughs> it is nonetheless consistent for me. So this week I want to talk about predestination. So usually when people hear the words predestination, they think of the idea that John Calvin put forward in the 16th century, which also uh, Martin Luther taught, uh, which was the idea that at the beginning of creation, God predetermined who was going to heaven and who was going to hell. And there was nothing you could do to change that fact. Mm. And the church actually has called that a heresy. But the church also teaches predestination, but it's not the way that Calvin taught it. So I want to kind of briefly talk about, in two minutes, hopefully, what the Catholic Church teaches regarding predestination. So, And this is not final destination, not, yeah. not to be confused <laughs> with with the... Uh, <laughs> with the movie series. The horror, the horror flicks, the teeny bopper horror flicks, yeah. final destination. That tire will find you and take you out. Yeah. <laughs> there are some verses... Romans 8, for example, where Paul says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and whom he predestined, he also called. So there are some verses that kind of suggest there's something like predestination, mm. but the Bible is also very clear about people making a choice, right. about people having free will. So right. there's, there seems to be some tension between, was it predestination or is it free will? And the Catholic Church would say it's both and. So how does that work? So God is outside of time and space. He's not locked in to space or time the way that we are as mortals. Yeah. He sees all of it mm-hmm. in one moment. It's a, it's, he's present to all time and all places at once because he's God. So God has predestined all of us for salvation. Everyone's predestined. His plan is not to save individuals, though individuals are saved, but it's for him to save all of humanity. But where he does predestine all of us for salvation, it's salvation in and through the grace of Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. in and through his life, death, and his resurrection. But we have to freely enter into Christ or freely allow Christ to enter into us. Mm -hmm. And that's an act of faith, which comes to us by grace. Right. But we have to cooperate. We have to accept that gift of grace. Everyone's given grace, that gift, that free gift. Mm-hmm. But it's a matter of, are you willing to accept it? So in that sense, we're all participants in God's plan of salvation, mm-hmm. right? So God predestines us all, but at the same time, we have to willingly participate. Mm-hmm. That's that's where the free will dynamic comes in. So here's a terrible analogy I've used in the past, but no analogy is perfect, but I think this one kind of gets to the point. Let's say that there's someone who's hosting a destination vacation. He invites everyone. And he gives everyone who's going to this destination vacation a device that gives them directions mm. to this location. Mm-hmm. So everyone has their device, but this person's going to fly to the location. And so they're 50,000 feet up in the air, and they can see what everyone's doing from their location up in the sky. And as he looks down, he can see some people don't even turn their device on because they don't believe there's a destination vacation. Okay. Other people have the device, but they're like, eh. I'm just going to try to figure out how to get there on my own. And they end up taking wrong turns and get lost. Mm-hmm. And you have other people who turn on the device, and as the device prompts them, they cooperate and follow the directions. They listen to what the voice tells them, and they arrive at the destination on time. 
mm-hmm. as planned. Mm-hmm. So that's a, that's a terrible analogy, but just think of God as the one who's hosting this party, this banquet. He's the one who's inviting everyone. He's given us all grace. He's given us all his son, Christ. And if we cooperate with grace, if we walk with Christ, we'll get there. Well, yes, the, the cooperation with grace is one thing, but when you completely open up your heart and accept who he is, mm-hmm. you want to fulfill that. Right. You want to to please him. It pleases you to please him. Right. Exactly. To to listen. Mm-hmm. You want to listen. You're actively listening. You know. Tell me where to go. Mm-hmm. Where you lead, I will follow. Yeah. Gladly, happily. You know, where wherever that leads me through troubled waters, right? you know, or uh, up a hill or up a mountain. Absolutely. You know, when yeah. you accept that for yourself, you, it mm. is, it pleases you to please him. Exactly. Yeah. Predestination in the Calvinist Luther idea, not what the church teaches, right? God doesn't say from the beginning of time, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, can't do anything about it. Sorry. The biblical view is here's grace, here's Jesus. You have a free will. Well, to... yeah, the reality is is we, as being human, as having free will, we always have the choice of a course correction. Yeah, right. So to go back to my analogy then, you let's imagine you go off course. If you have Google Maps or whatever on your phone, you know that if you go the wrong way, they're telling you, turn right, turn left, right. make a U-turn. Yeah. And that's kind of like the Holy Spirit working in our life, you know, like that small, still voice in the back of our head telling us, you know. <laughs> well, I mean, that is the word of God. That is our GPS. That is. Right? I totally. mean, that is our uh, navigation system to charter the waters and mm-hmm. get us to where we need to be. But really, uh, a manual in life to to conquer anything, mm-hmm. anything that, that comes our way, we're able to navigate in and through. All right, so in this segment of our show, we are joined by Paul Fahey, a contributor to Where Peter Is, which reminds me, I'm going to have to ask Mike Lewis to start paying me for promoting his site. Uh, So Paul, you and I, we've known each other um, on social media, on Facebook for a couple years now, right? I think it's been a couple years, yeah. And this is our first time actually seeing each other and talking to each other in, in person. It's crazy. In person um, over Skype. I mean, at, at this point in the pandemic, I think Skype is pretty much in person. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Yeah. <laughs> it's our new normal. But I think you and I have really kind of connected as well over our mutual admiration for Pope Francis. And by the way, we both have wives named Christina. Oh, so does your wife spell her name with a K or a C-H? It's, it's a C-H. Oh, okay. <laughs> Slight difference. But maybe uh, let's take a minute and just let our listeners uh, know a little bit more about you, uh, what you do for a living, etc., your family. Yeah. So my wife, Christina, and I, we've been married for, man, we got married um, Christmas break of our senior year of college. So that would have been December of 2011. So we're going on going on nine years. We have, we have four kids. Our oldest will be eight this December. Her and I went to the same school. We both studied theology. Me with with the plan of hoping to one day one day work in a parish. And after a couple of years of working at a local college 
bookstore after I graduated. I got a job, a full-time job at the parish I'm in now. I've been here since 2014. So I just had my, my six-year anniversary here at this parish as the, the director of religious ed and RCIA and anything else that I can do around here. I, I love this job quite a bit. Um, I get to lead a lot of retreats. I get to, to uh, teach a lot of classes, especially like RCIA, being able to to walk with people for a length of time, not just not just teaching them stuff, but being able to to share the faith in a much more personal way with them. Yeah, that's me. I've actually watched one of your retreats. You posted it on the Facebook group that we're in. You're you're really good, and I, it was very charismatic in focus. I believe it was a well, maybe tell people what that means. What is the charisma? Yeah, so it's a Greek word that means the gospel or the good news. More specifically, it would mean the the preaching of the good news, right? So the the good news spoken. And a few years ago, uh, I went on a retreat that that my diocese was having for uh, specifically for catechists, and it was called Kerygma Encounter. I was, you know, kind of ambivalent going into it, and it presented the the kerygma, which is the the most essential part of our of our faith. So if you look at what Pope Francis says in the Joy of the Gospel, he'll talk about how you know our faith has so many different doctrines and so many different teachings, all of them important, all of them have their place, but some are more important than others, right? Some are more essential. And if we bog people down with all of them at once, we miss it. We always have to go back to and rest everything on the essential. And he actually says at one point, he says that, um, and I'm going to paraphrase, but it's essentially all efforts of evangelization and catechesis and parish reform must be rooted in the proclamation of the kerygma, which is first and foremost, the love God has for us. So anyways, I went on this retreat and it changed how I taught and it changed my faith tremendously personally. So the next year when they were looking for more people to help lead it, I started leading it. So I've been leading, I've probably done a couple dozen of those for my diocese over the past couple of years. And I lead them primarily with Monica Pope. She's another lay minister at a parish. Um, she helped, she actually helped make the retreat, but she's a good friend of mine. And her and I have like a side project podcast that we do for where Peter is. But I also lead retreats at my parish for our parishioners and stuff. So I think what I did for our Facebook group was it was like the week after everything shut down back in March, I got nothing to do. So I got to figure out how to do Facebook live things for my parish. So I'm going to test run some stuff on this Facebook group and uh, just make a good time with it. Yeah, that was good. I am jealous that I can't be part of your parish and attend your retreats. So you mentioned Pope Francis and that's, he's the topic of our of our podcast today. I want to step back just a little bit here. So he was Jorge Mario Bergoglio, a cardinal of Argentina. When he was elected by the conclave on March 13th, 2013, to be the 266th successor to Peter as the Bishop of Rome. I have to say, when he was first elected, my life was kind of in this dark period. I was estranged from the church. Like I still believed I would still call myself Catholic, but I wasn't really participating in the sacraments. My life didn't really reflect my faith very much. But when I heard that he'd been elected, it was kind of like, okay, there's this guy from Argentina. That's cool. He's from the Americas. He's the first pope from the Americas. And I had heard that he was conservative, that maybe he was a little dour. Um, there was also talk about him not doing enough during the dirty war in Argentina to protect his priests. 
So I kind of started out with maybe a negative impression of him just from what I'd heard. But then I was really struck when he gave one of his first uh, airplane interviews with the media. And he said those now famous words, who am I to judge? And that really turned my head. And that's when I really started to pay attention. And being engaged with Pope Francis and then reading his work, that, that really brought me closer back into full participation in the church. So all that is to say, what about you? What was your first impression of Pope Francis when he was elected? And then when did you really start taking notice of him? I didn't pay a lot of attention to popes and what popes did and what popes wrote. And not that I didn't care. It just wasn't something I paid much attention to. So I graduated college in 2012. And then I'd been married for six months. My my wife and I, we found out we were pregnant. We both had you know, very lucrative theology degrees and a lot of student debt. So I was just looking for a job wherever I could get it that had health insurance. And I ended up getting a job, a really good job at Kelvin College, which was a Christian reform college in West Michigan, which is where we lived and working in their bookstore as a textbook buyer. I was also a very, very small minority of Catholics in that community both students and staff, there were very few Catholics. And, you know, I show up with my, you know, Aquinas college diploma and my my icon of Mary and hang those up in my office first thing, right? But working there was great. The community there was great. I was a textbook buyer. So I talked with a lot of the faculty and stuff and ordered, ordered the textbooks that they needed for their students. And a lot of them had a lot of admiration for the Catholic church. And we had some really good discussions. My manager there, he was a really great guy. Uh, he was an elder or a deacon in his church, so we were able to talk about the faith a lot. I was in that job for a couple of years, so when when Pope Benedict retired, obviously that made international news, and then the conclave and all of that. So all of a sudden, I became the de facto Pope expert in the bookstore, because I was the only Catholic in the bookstore. And that was a lot of fun. So I remember on the day he was elected, I was working in stuff, but in the corner of one of my screens was the, was the chimney cam. To, you know, to let us know when, when there'd be a new pope and Pope Francis was announced. And I had no idea who he was. I mean, it wasn't like I paid attention. It wasn't like I was, you know, you know reading the bios of the, you know, the, you know, the top 10 cardinals to be elected pope. I didn't know who he was. But I was just excited because I'm the only Catholic in this place and there's a new pope. So this is something to be excited about. So for the next couple of years, it was, I just, I had generally positive feelings towards Pope Francis. And then it was around the time of the announcement of the extraordinary Jubilee year for mercy, I had picked up a book called The Name of God is Mercy. It was a long interview that he did about mercy and forgiveness. And I read it. It's really short. It's like less than 100 pages or something. It changed how I saw my faith in an incredible way. And it wasn't so it wasn't until that point that I really started paying attention to what Pope Francis had to say. Yeah, and I think we both kind of had that same reaction to that book. I don't even remember where I got the book, honestly. Me either. I was thinking about that as I was speaking. I'm like, where? Why did I have this book? I don't know why I had this book. Yeah, I don't know either. It just magically showed up. No, I, I don't remember where I got the book, but I picked it up. It might have very well have just been like at a Barnes & Noble or something. I don't remember. But for whatever reason, I got this book, and it, it really left a... a a lasting impression on me and really helped me grow in, in my faith. Before I get to the book, I want to just say real quick that I had some listeners of our show reach out to me recently 
and they noticed <laughs> that the last few episodes have had a strong Catholic theme. And I apologize, uh, you know, to my listeners who are not Catholic because Joel isn't here. He's, you know, he's still working on his house and unable to, uh, to record with me. So I'm in control of the content and this is what I'm talking about. So sorry. Um, but for, they did say to me that they were appreciative that I was talking about it because they weren't Catholic and uh, they were learning more about the faith and they were just interested in, in hearing about it from someone who was in the faith, right? It wasn't an outsider kind of commenting on it. So I was really glad they, they were appreciative um, and I was happy to hear their feedback. But that leads me to this question. Why should non-believers, non-Catholics care? about Pope Francis? Like, what is so important about this discussion? Like, what does Pope Francis have to say that people should listen to? I'm not sure I have a great answer to that, but I'll start with a story. When I was working at that bookstore at Kelvin College, we had several student employees that worked for us. And one of the student employees, semester that Pope Francis was elected, she was studying abroad in Spain. And she stayed with uh, a Catholic family, was her host family in Spain. So when she uh, arrived back a couple months after Pope Francis was elected and we're talking about her semester away and all this kind of stuff, she talked about how they went down to, it was either um, for the conclave or right after Pope Francis was elected. They, they went to Rome, her and her host family. But she kept referring to the Pope as my Pope or our Pope. And she was as Christian reform as you could get. She was as, as Dutch Calvinist as you could possibly be. I think she wow. said all, all four of her grandparents were Dutch. And I'm like, it, it <laughs> yeah. Um, went to Christian reform grade school, Christian reform high school, and Christian reform college. And she refers to Pope Francis as my Pope. He's my Pope. He's our Pope. So something about his personality w was really compelling to her, which I thought was really neat. Why should non-Catholics or even non-believers listen to the Pope? I think on one hand, certainly he, he has an international voice. I mean, he's, he's sort of an uh, international political leader, kind of. I mean, Vatican City's a sovereign entity, I guess, barely. But he has an international voice. There's over a billion Catholics in the world that do see him as a, as a figure of authority. So what he says has a lot of influence, regardless of what it is. But I think Pope Francis in particular, and, and this isn't a knock at all on John Paul II or Pope Benedict, only that I was too young or not interested enough in my faith to have, have much experience with, uh, with them. Pope Francis is, is worth listening to because he's holy, because what he says is not only true, but extremely compelling and important for the world that we're in. So one example, um, it was just a couple weeks after everything shut down here in the United States in the pandemic since the end of March. And the Pope Francis does uh, what's called an Urbi et Orbi. So uh, to the city and to the world, Urbi like urban and Orbi like orbit, right? To the city and to the world. And it's a special kind of kind of blessing that the Pope does. And usually it's done around Christmas time. This was a extraordinary one he just decided to do. And I mean, it made international news in part because the visuals were just haunting and stunning at the same time. You see St. Peter's and the square is normally packed with people and it's empty. And there's this podium in the middle of St. Peter's Square. And there's the attendant helping the Pope and there's the Pope. And that's it. 
it's empty. It's dark, it's rainy, which matches, you know, the attitude of the entire world at this moment. And he just preaches this incredible sermon on the story of, of Jesus calming the storm at sea. At that moment, he was, in my opinion, the world's pastor. Obviously, he was speaking for and to Catholics specifically, but he was this religious leader standing up and preaching words of profound comfort and hope to the entire world at this moment. It was interesting because a lot of people in the Catholic world who had been previously mildly or overtly critical of him turned around at this point and they're like, this is exactly who we need in the church right now. So why should people listen to him? Because what he has to say is compelling. I, I totally agree. And, and especially with that Irby at Orby, you have so many leaders around the world who are either fixated on the science or they're fixated on the politics of the virus, this pandemic. But really here you had a spiritual leader in Pope Francis who was speaking to our fears, to our hopes um, at a deeper spiritual level. And I think that resonated with millions of people around the world. Yeah. And it wasn't that it was necessarily overtly Catholic, but uh, it was, he was speaking to, like you had said, the whole person, what we're experiencing. Some of us are experiencing the death and illness of friends and loved ones because of this. Some of us are experiencing uh, the loss of a job or loss of income because of this. Some of us are experiencing profound loneliness, being shut at home for weeks or months. All of us are experiencing various types of fear and anxiety. And he was able to speak to all of that and not just acknowledge it, but point to the source of healing and point to the source of comfort to give hope out of it towards anyone who's listening. Yeah, you're right. Those images were hauntingly beautiful. Just Pope Francis in this dark St. Peter's Square in the rain. I mean, you couldn't ask for better optics. The environment, the mood, everything kind of matched, I think, the world's feeling. And here you had Pope Francis kind of just speaking um, such beautiful words and blessings over, you know, everyone. It, it, really impactful. Um, and so from that, I want to ask, and you alluded to this, but Pope Francis is different. He is radical, um, as Austin Ivory, his biographer, um, has noted over the years, he is radical. How is he different from his predecessors like John Paul and Benedict? I mean, they're, they were popes. They were maybe the right people at the right time. They had their own charisms. But in what way is Pope Francis different? How is he able to reach so many more people? Yeah, I think, so So my perspective is limited. I mean, I was just, I was a kid when, when John Paul II died. And I didn't really, yeah, I mean, my conversion happened, even though I, I'm a cradle Catholic, my conversion didn't happen until after high school. And even after I converted and started studying theology, I didn't really pay attention, like I said, to Pope stuff. So it's hard for me to speak personally about John Paul II and Pope Benedict. I, th- I think they really were the men that we needed to lead the church at those moments. I mean, you, you look at the fall of communism and the role that the John Paul II had in that, that's profound. You look at the the mind of Pope Benedict and reading some of his writings. He's one of the best teachers uh, that maybe our faith has ever seen. Um, certainly one of the best. From my perspective, what makes Pope Francis different is his willingness to meet people where they're at, even if that may make people uncomfortable. 
and in that, I I think he really he really models God's attitude towards us. Then obviously he models Christ's attitude in the gospel, where Jesus was willing to meet sinners, public sinners, um, and not just you know public sinners like the woman caught in adultery, but but public sinners like tax collectors who stole from their own people. He met them exactly exactly where they were at and caused a profound amount of discomfort and scandal in the community doing so. So when Pope Francis says, you know, speaking about, I think he was speaking about specifically gay priests in the Vatican, when he said, if they're seeking the Lord, who am I to judge? That's meeting someone where they're at, regardless of the audience, which in this case is the world, their discomfort with it. There's also been times when there's been instances where a trans person has met with the Pope and the Pope made a point. He didn't just do it casually. He made the the point during or after the fact to bring up that he called this person, this trans person by the name that they preferred and by the pronouns that they preferred because this person deserves to be met right where they're at. And I think that's partly what's so scandalizing. You look at his teaching on um, communion, giving sacraments to the divorced and remarried. And it's, again, it's how do I meet this person right where they're at and not caring about the discomfort it, it'll make other people uh, feel. So in that sense, like people have talked about, you know, John Paul II's the philosopher, Pope Benedict, uh, the theologian, and Pope Francis, the pastor. I think there's some truth in that. But I think the pastoring that Pope Francis is willing to do is he's willing to uh, even him personally throw even the weight of the whole papacy around to talk to one person and to make sure this one person feels loved by God through him. That is absolutely profound to me that you have Pope Francis who will encounter that individual where they're at. And like you said, he will, it's almost like he forgets that he's the Pope, that he's the Bishop of Rome. And he becomes like a parish pastor for this one individual. And I know that irritates um, so many of the more critical, maybe conservative voices uh, in the church who expect Pope Francis to dot all the I's and cross all the T's. But he is a pastor and he calls all of us to mission. He calls all of us to go out to the peripheries, to the periferia, as he has said, and make a mess. And when you encounter people one on one as as human persons made in the image of God, it's going to be messy. You can't encounter someone with just like a cookie cutter, prepackaged theology or doctrine, right? I mean, those are all true. I don't want to say they're not, but human beings um, sometimes live in the gray area of the world. Yeah, and I I don't think he forgets he's pope. I think he he really recognizes that these small gestures that he does, it sets a standard. So here's one example. When he chooses to not live in the papal palace, but instead live in an apartment in the, the Casa Santa Marta there in the Vatican, it's, you know, it's maybe not the you know, most profound gesture in the world, but it's certainly a small gesture that shows that uh, he isn't concerned about the status and the, the symbols of his office. He's meant to be a pastor and a shepherd, right? Okay. It's a gesture. I mean, it's still a really nice apartment that he's living in, right? 
But in that gesture, he puts every bishop around the world on watch who's living in a mansion. And he's, he's challenging them to reconsider it. And we've seen some bishops step up to that. We've seen bishops who have moved into a new city. I think this may have happened in, in Seattle just within the past year where they, they had a new bishop come in. And like the very first day he's there, he sends a letter out saying, you know, this isn't a criticism of my predecessor. I just don't feel comfortable as, as a shepherd living in the archbishop's mansion. So I've started the process of seeing what the, what the diocese should do with that property, and I'll be looking for another place to live. So I don't think the Pope forgets who he is. And I think that's maybe why people get so upset, is because if the Pope can call someone gay, which is a big debate within, within the American Catholic Church, so for your non-Catholic listeners, whether or not we should, we should use the term gay is, is unfortunately a huge debate. But that the Pope did that. And that the Pope would say, if they're seeking God, who am I to judge? Now every Catholic in the world can say, well, the Pope said that. So it sets a standard, and I think that that really aggravates people. No, I think you're absolutely right. He's very um, conscious, not like in a pious way, but in a symbolic way of Christ's love in modeling for all of us uh, how to live. So I was listening to Austin Ivory talk about his book, Wounded Shepherd. And he used the analogy of Jesus scandalizing the Pharisees as an analogy for Pope Francis scandalizing all these like right-wing reactionary Catholics. Do you think that's a fair analogy? I, I think yes, though. It's certainly not, at least in the U.S., um, a lot of his most vocal opposition, it comes from the more theologically conservative or the more traditional wings of the church. But he also frustrates those on the left of the church as well, because, like, believe it or not, he's not interested in, in changing the doctrine of the church. And some, some people find that really frustrating, you know? So I think it's a shift in focus where our primary focus, according to both the teaching and, and personal witness of Pope Francis, is the person on the periphery, whether it's on the economic periphery, um, so the poor and the marginalized, whether it's on the social periphery, um, those ostracized by society, or whether it's on the periphery of the church, I think specifically of uh, divorced and remarried Catholics who find themselves in this weird gray area, or LGBT Catholics who have experienced a lot of discrimination and even hate directed at them from Catholics and, and pastors. He's like, these people on the periphery, they're the point, not the people with status, not the people who, who, who believe every word of the catechism, and not the people who are fully and completely orthodox. Not that those things are bad, but he's like, the point needs to be reaching out to these people. And if reaching out to these people makes, makes uh, other people uncomfortable, then so be it. I, I think of the, the parable of the shepherd with a hundred sheep and the one wanders off. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep who are obedient, who have done exactly what they were supposed to do. They're not bad sheep, but the shepherd leaves them to go off and chase off the other one. And I think to that end, I would say that's how Pope Francis is, is criticizing the institutions and attitudes within the church that want the status, that want the self-protection, that want the security of, I've been obedient, uh, you know, pay attention to me. Pope Francis is like, no, 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 no. Our job is to go off and to chase down that one sheep. Not to toot my own horn or anything, but I will be a guest on another podcast, uh, The Assembly of Saints. And I will be 
sharing my own conversion story with that podcast. But in praying and reflecting on my story, that's one of the parables that really stuck out to me. But the other one, too, that maybe I resonated with, but then also I looked at, I think this actually is a good analogy for the church right now. It's the parable of the prodigal son or the merciful father, where people like me came back. We were the prodigal sons. We were the ones who left and then came back into the merciful open arms of our father. And you have these people who are like the older brother in the church. And they're like, well, I've obeyed all the rules. I've done everything you've told me to do. And yet I don't get celebrated. I don't get a feast. (laughs) And I feel like that's how a lot of Catholics are. The ones in particular who criticize the Pope, they're kind of the, the brother who isn't thrilled that his attention is so much on mercy. I, I, I love that parable. And I think that parable sums up so much, like you said, of the church, but of Pope Francis's vision for the church as well. His message is for both of the brothers, because both yes. of the brothers in that parable had, they had the same problem. The younger brother, uh, the, the, the one who runs off, right? After he, he demands his inheritance and, and goes off to the foreign land and squanders it all on parties and prostitutes, and then a famine hits and he ends up in complete squalor, he's feeding pigs. His thought wasn't, and maybe my father will accept me back as a son because I'm his son. His thought was, you know, my father's servants, they have enough to eat and a place to live. Maybe if I go back and just beg for my father's forgiveness, that he'll accept me back as a servant. Like he thought that he had lost his identity as his father's son. So he prepares this long apology, the parable, and he goes back. And he starts his apology, and his father runs up to him and interrupts his apology and throws the cloak on him and gives him a hug and reinstates him as his son immediately before the son even finishes the apology. So if you look at the parable then of the older son, when he leans over to his servant and he's like, hey, what's this party going on? And the servant's like, oh, your younger brother, he's back, and your father threw him a party. So then the older son gets mad and he confronts his father. You look at the language that the older son uses, he's like, I have served and obeyed you this whole time. Serve and obey aren't verbs that children use about their father. They're language that servants use about their masters. He didn't recognize his, his dignity and his inheritance and his place in the family as the son. He, he saw himself as someone who had to earn his place in the family. So the message of Pope Francis, which, which I think the heart of his his spirituality or his teaching is the message of mercy, which has a couple different parts that we'll probably talk about eventually. But the first part is God's mercy towards us, which is God's unending and relentless love for us as our father, and therefore our identity as his children. And if we truly like internalize that and believe that, like in the depths of our bones, that heals us both of the wounds of the younger son, and the wounds of the older son. This message of mercy is for everyone in the church. Absolutely. And so that, that does bring me to that question then. We were both deeply affected by that book, The Name of God is Mercy. And what I love about this book so much is he confronts both sin and mercy, right? So in the book, he says, recognizing that you're a sinner is a sign of God's grace. Having that moment where you're like, holy crap. <laughs> I've done so many horrible things. There's a lot of people who are walking around in this 
this culture of ours who think whatever I want to do is absolutely fine. It's that moral relativism. Of I'm okay, benefits. you're okay. Exactly. Bishop Barron always bangs on that drum. But it's absolutely true. And so recognizing that you are not perfect, that you are a sinner, is a sign of God's grace. And Pope Francis himself has referred to himself as a sinner whom the Lord has looked upon. So mercy is kind of Pope Francis's theme, I guess, right? of his papacy. What about this book did you find so um, powerful? Yeah, I think it's what I just, I think it's what I just talked about. This book was the first step to me truly believing, truly internalizing that, that God is my loving father. I didn't really believe that before then. And so much of my formation in the faith never emphasized that. Somehow I missed that. I missed that in the, the, the focus on doctrines which are good and the focus on the moral law, which is good. But those things have to come after the initial proclamation, which is that we have a God who loves us as his children. So this book was the first step in uh, grace breaking through and allowing me to really deeply and truly internalize that truth. And I read this book, and I felt so challenged, but not in a like abrasive or condemning way. It was challenged in like, I want to be better because of what's being said in this book. And I think I, I read this book like three times within within the course of that year. I just kept going back to it because it was so compelling. There was at one point where I may have told my wife, Christina, where I, where I was like, I, I want to believe in the God that Pope Francis believes in. Yeah. So this book, there's other things too um, that have, that Grace has used to internalize, help me internalize this truth. But this book really was the first thing. Yeah, so the other part of this book that I really loved as well is he refers to the church as a field hospital. And that to me really was an image. Pope Francis, by the way, is so good with using images to communicate what he's, what he's teaching, which is very much what Christ himself did. Yeah, right. And also what a good homilist does, you know? Exactly. But he describes the church as a field hospital. Now, what to me, what was so powerful about that was at a field hospital, you're in the midst of a war. You're in the midst of a battle, and you're on the battlefield. And in those situations, if you're a medic, your job is to get in there and treat the immediate wound, right? Put a tourniquet on, whatever, amputate if you have to. But so many people, they, in our church, unfortunately want to focus on the nitty-gritty, right? So that's kind of like you have someone here who's bleeding out, right, of a chest, you know, chest wound or what have you, and you're concerned about their blood pressure and cholesterol. What's your take on the field hospital image that uh, Pope Francis uses? Yeah, a couple different things. Uh, one is the focus on, you know, someone's bleeding out and we're checking their cholesterol. I think, think the way that, that Bishop Barron puts it uh, he uses he uses baseball as the analogy. He loves baseball. He's like, so if you want to help someone love the game of baseball, it's like the first thing you do is you take him to a game, right? And you have him experience it. You don't hand him the rule book and you don't tell him about the infield fly rule because that's not going to attract them. It's not going to compel them in any way. And so often in our church, we've we focus on on the rule book and we focus on some of the more <laughs> obscure rules in the rule book. If there's a hierarchy of, of teachings in the church, we, we focus on the ones that aren't the first priority. 
Another thing I'd say about the field hospital image, the part that resonates with me the most about that is there's a recognition that a battle's going on, but nobody's my enemy, right? Like I'm not a, he's not using the image of I'm a soldier in a battle fighting my enemy. Not at all. I'm responsible to take care of everyone on the battlefield. I don't have enemies. And uh, as a young adult going through college and a few years after, so much of my faith was wrapped up in the, the American culture war. I was extremely involved in pro-life work throughout college. And it's an issue that's still really important to me. But again, so much of pro-life work and so much of my faith was wrapped up in the culture war. I saw so many people as enemies. But the image of a field hospital is these people aren't my enemies. These are people who are bleeding out as much as I'm bleeding out and need the healing and transformation that Christ can give them, that the church can give them as much as I need those things. Yeah, to me, that was that was really powerful. And I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the Bishop Barron um, analogy as well, because when I have these discussions with people on Facebook or on Twitter, which sometimes is in vain <laughs> as it is, it's like you want to say, yes, we want to reach these people who are on the periphery of our church or of society. We want to heal their wounds. But then these other people, maybe they're more uh, conservative or traditional or reactionary, they're like, whoa, 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 make sure that you remind that person that being gay is a sin. <laughs> or whoa, whoa, or remember to remind this person that adultery is a sin. They always want to come in there with the little caveat, or they always want to say, yes, God loves you, but there's always that twist. And it's never just, you know, you are the son or daughter of our of our loving, merciful father. It's always the but. Yeah, I think this points to... A couple different subtle, but ultimately really toxic um, distortions in uh, in the church, or at least in the circles of the church, or my experience of, of the church often. Uh, one is this idea, and th- this is neo-Pelagianism, which is something that the Pope has called out a lot. That's this idea that I have to meet God halfway, that I have to step first, that I have to be good enough in some way. I have to get rid of this, you know, vile sin in my life, or I have to be a better person. And God will meet me then, which is absolutely not the case. In his document on personal holiness, Rejoice and Be Glad, Pope Francis calls this out um, directly. And he references, uh, I don't know, the Synod of Orange or something, which is some old church council that nobody's ever heard of before, of of this doctrine that says that even the desire for conversion is itself a gift of grace. God meets us immediately where we're at, and then he changes our desires. Then we must respond. We still must respond and step out, but we're responding because we've been prompted and because the Holy Spirit has already even started to change our heart. So, so we have this idea that someone has to be, someone has to get their life together to some extent, and then God will meet them. And that's absolutely not the case. The other thing too, which, which I think is related, is the moral law is seen so much as something in a context outside of grace. So if you go back to what the Catechism says about the moral law, it presents the moral law as a promise, not as a rule book. So it actually says there's there's two stages in God's revelation of the moral law. The first is the Old Testament Ten Commandments. And this is where God articulates, essentially, his objective design of the world. And he says, if you f- live your life this way, life will be better. You will have good relationship with me and good relationship with others, because this is how I design things to be. Right? It's the promise of, of happiness. That's why we live the Ten Commandments, is because it's good for us. Not just like, okay, I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments so that I don't go to hell. 
I mean, there's some truth in that, but it's that I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments like now. Like we should be able to see the good in our life now. Not not in a prosperity gospel type of thing. It's not like we're going to have millions of dollars in mansions if we follow the moral law. But we will be whole, and we will feel whole, and we will feel peace and joy from from living this way. Okay, so that's the first stage of God's revelation of the moral law. But then the Catechism says it says this is incomplete. It's incomplete because uh, it doesn't. The Ten Commandments don't actually give us the strength to follow them, and that's the story of the Old Testament. God gives his people the Ten Commandments, and they fall away over and over and over again into idolatry, into not serving the poor, into all these terrible things. So it says the second stage of God's revelation of the moral law is Jesus Christ himself. At the Sermon on the Mount, um, he sums up the moral life. And he even and there's kind of there's one line in there that really kind of sums up all of it, and that Jesus says, Be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, if someone's thinking from the first stage of Revelation, they're going to hear that and just be overwhelmed and saddened because they're like, I can't do that. That's a bar I can't reach. But the Catechism says that the, the gospel, the grace of, uh, of Jesus Christ, is that not only does he clarify and bring light and elevate the teaching itself, but through participation in his life, through grace, he actually gives us the strength and the desire to live it out. Right. So the moral law isn't an objective rule book we need to follow. It's the promise that we will be able to live this way. It's the promise that through Jesus Christ, we will actually be able to live and love like he did and have the same desires he did. But that's not how we teach the moral law to people. We teach it as this thing like, if you're not following all of these rules, you're messing up. Rather than look at how you look, how free and well you can live if you cooperate with grace. You're absolutely uh, right there. And I like that you drew the parallel between Moses and Christ um, during the Sermon on the Mount, because, you know, Moses goes up to the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments. And then when he comes down with them, he sees all these guys, all these Israelites just living in sin and they're worshiping idols. And he's so pissed. He destroys the tablets of the Ten Commandments. Conversely, though, Jesus goes up the mountain and he gives the law. He gives the Beatitudes, how to be happy. And when he comes down, he encounters a leper and he heals them. I, I think that's, that's, the, that's the ticket right there. That's the crux is Jesus heals. And Pope Francis is very um, attuned to this, I think more so than many, uh, unfortunately, in our world in our, in our, and in our church. Yeah, he's extremely critical of anybody who will use the moral law as a club to bludgeon people. And he's he's extremely critical of that because if you think of the moral law that way, that's being a Pharisee. That's exactly what that is. Exactly. And so I feel like I'm maybe being too critical of people, but <laughs> one one more thing, I guess. A lot of people don't understand what mercy is. A lot of the people who criticize Pope Francis will say that he doesn't understand mercy. They look at his understanding of mercy as just permissiveness. What are they missing about his understanding of mercy? Yeah, that the Pope Francis isn't, isn't interested at all in lowering the bar and lowering the demands of the gospel. I mean, and if you sit down and read his teachings, when he presents the ideal of what a saintly life looks like, of what the demands of the gospel are, he doesn't sugarcoat those things. Again, this is Bishop Barron. I think Bishop Barron said something like, God demands an unachievably high bar, and he doesn't lower it for us. 
But instead, what he does is he meets us exactly where we're at, and then he lifts us up to that bar. And I think that's very much Pope Francis's understanding of mercy, is that God descends to us and then lifts us up to this bar. I think what people misunderstand uh, is, is they think that, he, that he's lowering the bar himself, that he's lessening or watering down the, the demands of the gospel. And that's certainly not the case. Recognizing that grace meets us where we're at and brings us to a, a greater place is very different than, okay, it's the difference between, and maybe this will go over most people's heads, so you can, you can delete this if you want. John Paul II, in one of his teachings, used the phrase, the law of gradualism. And then he quickly clarifies and says, this isn't a gradualism of law. So what are these things? The law of gradualism is that grace meets us where we're at and progressively moves us to the ideal, right? In a gradual way. Pope Francis has reiterated this multiple times. A gradualism of law is say the, the law itself is going to accommodate to us. Okay. I think many people confuse Pope Francis's law of gradualism as a gradualism of law. Right. And I think Pope Francis would say that he is accompanying people. That's like one of his favorite words to accompany. So it's not like you said, it's not that the law gradually changes. It's that we gradually conform to the law. I think you're right. There's like almost an immediate demand. Like you need to be perfect right now. Instead of saying, as you grow in faith, as you grow in grace, you will be more and more um, in line with the law. Yep. And I kind of want to wrap up just in a minute here, because I've already kept you way beyond <laughs> the time. Uh, but I love having this conversation with you. In the book, The Name of God is Mercy, he mentioned something that is, um, I guess, central to one of my favorite books and movies, Silence. Have you seen that movie or read the book? Both, yeah. And it's this idea of someone continually failing and returning for forgiveness and returning for mercy. Because people, I think, have the attitude that, well, if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, well, then you're not really converted or you're really not a person of faith. And I think Pope Francis uses the example of Peter, who the night of Christ's execution multiple times denies that he knows him. And then he has to, when Christ is resurrected, go to him and ask forgiveness three times, or he is given mercy three times. But I think another person that kind of gets, um, that should be contrasted with that is, um, is Judas. How is Judas um, an example of maybe someone who thinks that they've committed a sin and then therefore they don't need mercy? The obvious difference between Judas and Peter is, is Judas falls into despair he recognizes that what he did was wrong. But instead of believing that God is who he says he is, that God is this loving father, because he doesn't fully believe that, he falls into despair. I just betrayed the Messiah. I can't come back. I would say the difference is that Peter knew, even though he felt, I imagine, profound shame, part of him knew Jesus would welcome him back. There is a really fascinating line in the book, The Name of God is Mercy. And I think Pope Francis is quoting John Paul I, who was only Pope for, you know, a few days, so he's not often quoted, who said something like, God will even permit us to fall into mortal sin, lest we think of ourselves as half a saint or half an angel. One of the profound mysteries of our faith is that God will even use our sins for a greater good. So if we have that hope that even though we may have done something that just disgusts us, right? 
we're so shameful of, or even if we're the person who goes back to confession again and again and again for the same thing for weeks, for months, for years, again and again, never going to, this is never going to get better. To believe that God is who he says he is, this loving father, is also to believe that God is using this sin for some type of greater thing that he wants to do, even if it's just maybe to keep us a little bit more humble and a little bit more open. Because this is the thing, when Pope Francis talks about we have to see ourselves as sinners, it's not so that we go crawl in a corner and have a whole ton of self-pity. It's so that we keep going back to our loving Father, who's the font of mercy. My sinfulness should always keep moving me back to God to receive more and more of his healing and more and more of his transformation. So for the person who just feels so ashamed of their sin, the good news is that God is at, at minimally using that sin to keep drawing us back to God's love. That's beautifully said. Maybe you could we could end here. Just any um, reflection, anything you want to leave our listeners with in terms of Pope Francis and his papacy? I think that Pope Francis is exactly the voice that the church needs at this moment. Un- unfortunately, like like we've kind of we've talked about a little bit, um, there's a lot of people who have a lot of skepticism or criticism of Pope Francis, which really makes me sad, especially when I see it in my own circles in my own community, because I've received so much grace through his teaching. And I want others to receive that too. So if you're unfamiliar with Pope Francis, um, I would encourage you to go pick up The Name of God is Mercy or or the other book I mentioned, Rejoice and Be Glad, and read it with an open heart and expect the Lord to speak. Or if you're someone who's a little bit skeptical or critical of the Pope already, to give him a second chance because what he has to say, he wants to bring just as much healing and transformation to you as he does to anybody else. Well said. Thank you so much, Paul. Before we uh, wrap up here, though, uh, where can our listeners um, find more of your work and maybe your podcast as well? Yeah, so I write primarily for um, Where Peter Is at wherepeteris.com. Um, I'm a contributor there. My own website is pfahey.com. Uh, and I have some additional content there that isn't on Where Peter Is, but, but most of it's what's on Where Peter Is. I, I make a podcast as like a side project for Where Peter Is. I mentioned this with my friend Monica Pope called Apostles Field Guide, and that's where we uh, we look at different church documents and, you know, uh, talk about them, not just, like, as teachers, but as, how are these documents, how is the Lord changing us through them as well? Where Peter is, that's the best place to find me. I look forward to uh, our continued friendship on social media, and maybe we could do another discussion, not recorded, just you and I, because I really, uh, before I hit record, I was really enjoying our, our discussion there. Oh, um, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me um, and for just sharing all of this with our listeners. Jose, thanks for having me on. We'll see you next time then. All right, so as we wrap up the show, Christina and I will each share one thing that we have been watching or reading or listening to this week. So Christina, what do you have for us? This week, I am totally digging, feeling my favorite band's iration. And apparently they have a new album out called Coastin'. And I came across it on YouTube. And I am just loving this album. It is so chill. I feel like it's so quintessential Cali vibe, like just chilling on the beach. 
yeah, I'm totally digging it. Some of my favorite songs are um, Home Tonight, uh, Right Here, Right Now, uh, and Gwaveling. But, I mean, to be truthful, I'm, I'm just digging the whole album, really. I'm not into the whole reggae music. Reggae. Oh, my God. <laughs> As you know. That's how, that's how, um... That's how Ramona pronounces it. Yeah, pronounces it from Real Housewives, New York City. I think it was a jazz band or a yeah. a reggae, a reggae yeah. band. Reggae? Yeah, reggae. But uh, yes, it is the reggae. I've gone with you, I believe, twice now, both times at the Santa Barbara Bowl. Yeah. And they're really good. Yeah. That there. was actually for my birthday last year. Yeah. That was amazing. That was actually at the end of their tour hometown mm. now the guys all met in hawaii they're from hawaii they actually went to ucsb mm-hmm. so that's where they formed the band yeah and so i mean they were playing like isla vista you know santa barbara downtown mm-hmm. so to end their tour and i think it was their first time headlining the santa barbara bowl so to be able to bring it home to santa barbara and beat the headline at the bowl i remember micah uh, the lead singer, um, just saying that it was a dream come true. Yeah, and uh, I was dreaming because I was getting a contact high from everyone smoking the gone. Oh, my gosh. You know, it was to the front of us, the back, the left, and the right. What are you going to do? Um, good vibes. <laughs> good vibes. <laughs> good Cali vibes. Oh, yeah, good Cali vibes, good Cali bud, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just good music. Good times, good music. I just, I love Micah's voice. And as this band has evolved over the years, their sound just gets more and more, um, I don't know. It, it It's not traditional reggae for sure, but it's so easy on the ears. And it totally makes you want to tap your feet and and bob your head. And this is a great album to listen to. So yeah. Sit down with some sativa, lizard's mouth, and... <laughs> And that's a perfect segue into Down to Earth. Yes. So I've been watching, with you, of course, the series Down to Earth. Yes. It's an eight-part Netflix docuseries. Yes. It stars high school musical Glee ripoff, Zac Efron. Glee ripoff. <laughs> and Darren Olean, who is a superfood hunter. He's the author of the book Super Life. He's really cool dude yeah and you just started listening to his podcast I yes believe. what's his podcast called it's just the darren olean show so down to earth it has these really two cool guys who are the hosts or travel guides if you will but rotten tomatoes gave it a 57 percent rating that's an f the audience rating however is 77 percent, which would be like a c i would give it a solid a i would say 95 i'm right there with the a man i i i love this show so good so I guess the critics, the people who did not like the show, were not down with the whole, like, bro, vibe. Like, mm. kind of the SoCal vibe. Well, we're both from Southern California. Right. Central Coast, technically, I guess. Yeah. Actually, Zac Efron grew up in our community. Mm-hmm. And he performed plays in our local PCPA theater. Yeah. So he's a local boy. Trip out on that. So for us, we're totally not bothered phased. or phased yeah. by hearing them go like, bro, whoa, that was sick. Yeah. And you see like Zac Efron skateboarding in France, which is like yes. super cool. It's like, I want to skateboard in France. That's like, we're in California. That's like totally normal for yeah. us. Yeah. So I can see where some critics are all stuffy and we're put off by it. Yeah. 
Come on, people. Well, there was definitely the the bro vibe permeating from mm-hmm. each episode. But, you know, again, we're man, this is our neck of the woods. So yeah. it's just ingrained into our, our culture. To me, I actually thought it was really cool in that it was accessible. Mm-hmm. It wasn't hoity-toity kind of ivory tower sort of here's some superfoods right it was like two just dudes who were just brawn out yeah traveling the world. for sure well i mean that's what this show is really all about it's a presentation for for anybody for yeah. the average person to one to be able to travel to these places and um two to just really open up our minds to the content that they're discussing yeah so they're definitely following like in the footsteps of Anthony Bourdain. Yes. And you had mentioned this the other day, actually. That Bourdain left a void. Yeah, he totally did. And so people are filling that void. Mm. Those are big shoes to fill. Yeah, for sure. But they go from Iceland to France to Lima to Sardinia to Costa Rica, Puerto Rico. I mean, they travel the world. Mm -hmm. And they want to learn about how to live on the planet in a more eco-friendly way what foods to eat that are healthier uh, for their body. Sustainability. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I appreciated that Yeah, a lot. It inspires me. It really, really does. Because I'm, I'm like watching this show and I'm like, man, we produce a lot of waste. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my favorite episodes on the show was France. And mm. they talked about their water system there and how they treat their water. That France has all of these um, water fountains all over the city. They have an app, which mm-hmm. is so awesome, so that you can locate any water fountain in the, the city. Not only do they have amazing tap water free mm-hmm. for the whole city, they have sparkling water fountains in their city as well. So it's like, here's not only really good tap water for you yeah, that doesn't have all the junk and chemicals that uh, – American water does. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go ahead and add some sparkling water for your, right. <laughs> your enjoyment. Free. Yeah. Crazy. By the way, so the water episode, if you're Catholic, you'll really enjoy that they actually go to Lourdes. Oh, that's right. That's which right. is yeah, the, yeah. the healing waters. And they go through the whole process of how people who have gone, like thousands and thousands of people have gone there and claim to have been healed right. at that location. Mm. Then of that, of those thousands, only a select few have actually gone through the process of being medically verified to have been miraculously healed at that location. Yeah, right. and they have a doctor on site. Yes. So if you go there, let's say you have cancer and you're healed, you would provide your x-rays and here's the cancer. And, and now the cancer's gone. Yeah. And then you have to come back 10 years later to show like the cancer is still gone. Yeah. So it's a really intricate process. I thought that was really interesting how they showed that because I don't know that much about it honestly so it was interesting to hear yeah my favorite episode though was the first one when they go to when they go to iceland yeah and they show how they use the natural resources to create energy that the cities use yes but the coolest part i thought was when they dig up a hole in the ground this is like soil that's soaked with water that's been superheated by volcanic activity. A geyser, if you will. Yeah. And they dig up a hole and they bury this pot. Oh, for rye bread. For rye bread. Rye bread. Rye bread. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then they're able to um, throw in a handful of eggs and they hard boil oh, eggs. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. And they had rye bread and eggs. And eggs. And, yeah, they had uh, some smoked, local smoked salmon, too. Yeah. Yeah. 
And it's funny because Zach breaks the fourth wall and he's talking to the cameraman. Very office-like breaks the fourth wall. Looks at the camera, cameraman, and says, hey, dude, you want some bread? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. Good show. Yes. Check it out. Um, it's one of the top five shows on Netflix right now. Mm-hmm. So. Because it is one of the top rated shows on Netflix, mm-hmm. I was surprised that it got such a low rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That sure. really kind of blew my mind right there because apparently a lot of people are watching this show. Yeah, they are. And I think I, I can totally see them getting a season two out of this. I would love 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 to see a season two all right thank you so much for joining us that's all for this week we appreciate you joining us on our humble little podcast you could do us a huge favor by subscribing to our show wherever you listen to podcasts such as stitcher podbean google play or apple podcasts and be sure to rate our show and leave a review your rating will help others find our show And be sure to find us also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Conversation on Tap. Thank you, Paul, for being our guest this week. And thank all of you for listening. And thank you, Christina, for being the co-host. We'll see you guys next week. Cheers. Cheers. Still the hottest co-host. Oh, my God.